Enablement. Welcome to the much delayed Africa Eye Film Festival 2022 special edition of Yay Nay Omar presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I always intended to release a special episode about the films I watched at the Africa Eye Film Festival, similarly to what I did with the Film Bath Festival. But various things have delayed the release of this podcast. Firstly, I needed to release the Film Bath Festival special, which actually overlapped with the Africa Eye Film Festival. I needed to do some standard episodes, and then the World Cup started. So it's been very nearly a month since I watched these films, and I've delayed enough that one of these films, the new film from the Dardenne brothers, Tori and Lokita, is actually out at the cinemas already. So this will serve as both a wrap-up of the films I saw at the Africa Eye Film Festival and a timely review of that Belgian film. As I have started doing with these special festival episodes, it's going to be done in a little bit of a different way. I've saved all of these reviews in discrete units so when the time comes to release a review of a film because it is out legally in the uk i can just slip in the already recorded material so it's going to sound a little bit different and one of these three films i'm not gonna have to bother doing that because it's already out So this is going to sound a little bit different to my usual episodes, but it is important, I feel, to get these films released and do a tiny bit to promote the Africa Eye Film Festival in Bristol. So in this episode, I will be reviewing the three films I saw at that festival. The Blue Kaftan, which Morocco has submitted to the International Feature Oscar. Tug of War, which Tanzania has submitted to the International Feature Oscar, and the new film from the Dardan brothers, Tori and Lokita. So, without further ado, here are the films I saw at the Africa Eye Film Festival 2022. The Blue Kaftan is a Moroccan film which premiered at the Uncertain Regard section of the Cannes Film Festival and was submitted by Morocco to the International Feature Oscar Race in 2023. It is written and directed by Mariam Tuzani, who has one feature film in her background, Adam, in 2019, which was also submitted by Morocco to the Oscars and credited as a collaborator on the screenplay, is the highly regarded Moroccan filmmaker Nabil Ayouch, who also happens to be Mariam Tuzani's husband. Nabil Ayouch has directed seven feature films, six of which have been submitted by Morocco to the Oscars, 
the one that wasn't is mostly in English about a Canadian woman who learns belly dancing. But yes, Nabil Ayush is one of Morocco's most highly regarded filmmakers. His film Horses of God, I think, was outstanding. And he was also last year's Oscar submission by Morocco, Casablanca Beats, which did get international distribution and was released here in the UK at the beginning of 2022, but I never got around to seeing it. So yes, this is a husband and wife team who are at the cornerstone of Moroccan filmmaking. And this film, The Blue Kaftan, is largely a three-handed film. Starring Lubna Azabal, a Belgian actress of Moroccan descent, who, way back in the early days of this podcast, the second award ceremony I ever put together, Lubna Azabal won my award, my Raw Footage Award, for Best Actress, for the brilliant but absolutely harrowing French-Canadian film Ensemble. And since then, she's popped up here and there in English-language films. She was in Coriolanus. She was in Mary Magdalene. She's been in other stuff. I, I keep on seeing her popping up here and there. But she is the female lead of this film, alongside Saleh Bakri, the Palestinian actor, who, amongst many other things, is always the male lead in Anna Maria Jassir's Palestinian films, including the outstanding Wajib. So yeah, I gave him a lot of praise for that. And the third member of the cast is a newcomer, Ayub Misiawi, who doesn't have any other credits on IMDb, but Lubna Azabal and Saleh Bakri are in my opinion, two of the finest actors in the Arab-speaking world. And here they team up in this Moroccan film. Which is set in the Medina of Saleh in Morocco, where Saleh Bakri is a marlam, a tailor and embroiderer of beautiful handcrafted kaftans. He has a small shop, it's just him and his wife who run this shop. But with this handcrafted, traditional approach, they are getting behind on their orders, and there's another reason why they're getting behind on their orders, which is not being fully acknowledged at the start of the film. But they need help. So an apprentice is hired at this Marlam's shop, played by Ayub Misiawi. And instantly sparks start between this young male assistant and the Marlam Saleh Bakri, which is noticed by Lubna Azabal and perhaps is not necessarily approved of. But she's got other things on her mind because Lubna Azabal is very, very ill and taking time off to deal with that is why they're so far behind on their handcrafted kaftans. So a kind of odd triangle starts between these three people with this clearly closeted tailor, Saleh Bakri, 
not wanting to disappoint or leave his wife, who is very, very ill. And yet there's this hot boy who seems to completely reciprocate any unspoken feelings that might be going on. So a strange situation develops between these three people in this little tailor's shop. And eventually, as Liebman Azabal gets more and more ill, they basically transfer back into Saleh Bakri and Lubna Azabal's apartment. So how will this complex triangle play itself out? This is an excellent film. One of the first things I can say about this film is it is a portrait, an exploration of deep and abiding love. This is one of the most intense films I've ever seen on the subject of love. Because however Saleh Bakri spends his time and whoever he gets intimate with physically, he clearly, deeply, completely loves his wife Lubna Azabel. There's even a speech in this film towards the end of it which indicates just how much Saleh Bakri needed Lubna Azabal and still needs Lubna Azabal, despite the fact he is clearly very, very attracted to Ayub Misiawi. And every now and again, Saleh Bakri just goes to the local hammam, the bathhouse, and hooks up with men. But he still has this connection, this desperate need for his wife, Lubna Azbal, who he's been married to for 25 years. And this might not necessarily be a sexual or a physical attraction or love, but it is love nonetheless, and it is very, very powerful. But there's this extra element suddenly this handsome young man is in their lives and right from the start Lubna Aswell says oh my husband's into the new apprentice and she doesn't like it I mean it's actually very very unclear how aware Lubna Azabal is about her husband's proclivities it is absolutely clear that it's never been spoken about but is this something that Lubna Azabal is being willfully ignorant of? You know, I know my husband goes down to the hammam every now and again, but I do not want to know what he does there. Or is it kind of a suspicion that she has, which is confirmed when you know her husband's clearly into the new apprentice? I don't know which it is. I mean, this has clearly never been stated, and I find it very, very significant that we see Lubna Azabal praying quite frequently throughout the course of this film. You know, listening to the, um, I can't remember what they call it, the call to prayer from the local mosque. And we see her praying, but we don't see anybody else praying. So she's clearly more religious than the other people in the film, and maybe that has something to do with her willful ignorance. But so much of this film is about what is not being said. This is high praise indeed, but one thing that kept coming to mind as I was watching this film is Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
because that is very much about what is not being said. I mean, the act of looking and being looked at. And the way that Saleh Bakri is looking at Ayub Misiawi is clearly communicating something, and Lubna Azabal is picking up on that. And the way in turn she mildly resents this new man in her husband's life, the way she looks at him changes throughout the course of the film. I mean, either this is, you know, I don't care what he gets up to in the hammam, but now this man is basically living with us, how do I deal with that? Or my suspicions have been confirmed and I don't want them confirmed. So there's a little bit of antagonism between Lubna Azbal and Ayub Misiawi. But the more and more Lubna Azabal succumbs to her illness, the more and more this couple needs the help of Ayub Misiawi. And like I said, the second, probably about the second half of the film, these three people are essentially living in this same small apartment as Lubna Azabal is, you know, sick in bed. And Saleh Bakre and Ayub Misiawi are doing this really, really intricate handcrafted embroidery in the living room rather than at the Marlem's shop. And, you know, an understanding, a a concord occurs between these people, and eventually Lubna Azabel basically says to her husband, I can see what's going on here, and Saleh Bakri, I mean, clearly for the first time, opens up to his wife about these feelings he's tried to repress throughout the course of his entire life. I mean, this is the first time that these things have been openly spoken about. Uh, and that, I think, is really powerful stuff, because so much of this is about what is not being said. It's a very long time before it is actually acknowledged on screen or said in dialogue that Lubna Azabel is ill. I mean, there's scenes only in the film, you know, I'm tired, I'm going home. Oh, it's a little bit early. No, I'm tired, I'm going home. And you know, customers say to Lubna Azabal, are you feeling all right? You look a bit under the weather, or you know, the Arabic equivalent. So, I mean, there's hints here and there, but it's not actually said until quite a way into the movie. We know that Saleh Bakri does go to the hammam, the local bathhouse, and you can imply what he does there. But gradually, as we go further and further into the film, we see more and more trips to the hammam. Eventually, it is made absolutely clear what Saleh Bakri is getting up to in the bathhouse. But for a long time, it's not directly acknowledged. And Ayub Misiawi, the way that he is looking at Saleh Bakri and Saleh Bakri is in turn looking at him, I mean, it's clear that there's an attraction there, but it is not said in dialogue for a very, very long time into the film. And that doesn't necessarily go as planned because Saleh Bakri still loves his wife in a very complete way, but not necessarily a sexual way. And the interactions between Saleh Bakri and Lubna Azabal, I think that Mariam Tuzani deliberately made that a little bit ambiguous. I mean, because, I mean, I'm assuming by the time you look into this film, you know that it's about a closeted man. So you can see that the relationship between Lubna Azbal and Saleh Bakri is not a traditional marriage. And some of the interactions between the two are a little bit uncomfortable and 
with that knowledge of the closeted nature of it in the background. It looks strange. It looks uncomfortable. But there's a revelation towards the end of the film which completely flipped my expectations as to what this marriage actually was. And who's the one who's a little bit skittish about the amount of intimacy within this marriage? By the end of the film, it seems to be Lubna Azabel who's being a little bit distant from her husband for a completely different reason than what we expected. And that little flip towards the end really brought this film home to me because it looked to me like you know, a marriage of convenience, a lavender marriage, if you want. I have to get married so I can stay in the closet and you know, I have to put up with my wife. But with this revelation towards the end, you can see that there is genuine affection, genuine connection, genuine love between these two people. But there's other stuff as well. And it's pitched so perfectly. This really is a film which explores in a very deep and a very profound way love and differing facets of love, differing types of love, different levels of love, but love nonetheless. And it's really, really powerful stuff. I mean, Lubna Azabel is absolutely outstanding in this film. Some of the physical acting she has to do towards the end of the film, I think, is very impressive. The emotions, you know, acknowledging her husband's proclivities, gradually accepting or, or accepting as much as she can her husband's proclivities. All of that is done really, really well. I mean, the the unspoken tension between Saleh Bakri and Ayub Misiawi until you know it's spoken and kind of spoils it is there. I mean, there's so much going on here, and when you can positively compare a film to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I think that's high praise. I think that's really, really saying something. I mean, the sight and sound poll is due out within the next couple of weeks as I'm recording. You know, they do it every 10 years. The BFI magazine Sight and Sound asks filmmakers around the world, what is your best film ever? And for the first time in the 2012 poll, it wasn't Citizen Kane. Instead, it was Vertigo. But the 2022 poll is due to be published not too long into the future. And I would not be at all surprised if Portrait of a Lady on Fire is the most modern film which makes the top 100 list, or if it doesn't make the top 100 list, that makes gets the most votes. Because Portrait of a Lady on Fire is, in my opinion, a modern masterpiece. And when I watched this film and I was getting positive reminders of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that really, really says something. I think The Blue Kaftan is an outstanding film. It's a powerful film. It's a beautiful film. And I really, really recommend it. I assume at some time in 2023 it's going to be released here in the UK. And when and if it does, I urge you to check it out. Because for me, The Blue Kaftan is a definite yay. Quick sidebar before I get back to the reviews. 
As well as Tori and Lakita being released into the cinema since the time I recorded these reviews, the Sight and Sound poll has also been released since I recorded that review. And indeed, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is the highest modern film on the poll, a film that was released since the last time that Sight and Sound released the poll in 2012. In total, there are four films released since 2012 in the top 100. Get Out, which is equal 95th. Parasite, which is equal 90th. Moonlight, which is equal 60th. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is 30th. And there was a lot of speculation from the misogynistic right-wing bigots saying, don't let Portrait of a Lady on Fire be the number one. Uh, which is predictable and depressing, but nobody saw Jean Dielman coming, did they? I was genuinely shocked when Chantal Ackman's Jean Dielman was the number one film in the Sight and Sound poll 2022. So, yes, this very long, very repetitive feminist trope from the 1970s, from Belgium actually, is the best film of all time, apparently. So, yeah, that was intriguing. But I did predict it right, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire was indeed the highest-ranked modern film in the Sight and Sound poll, and I think that is something worth noting and worth celebrating. So, now I have done that, on with our regularly scheduled programming. Tug of War, or Vuta and Kavute, is the first film that Tanzania has ever submitted to the international Oscar race. It is written and directed by Amil Shivji, who has several shorts and a feature in his background. He also has a film production company which has produced a Tanzanian feature in the past and is on the faculty of the University of Dar es Salaam. He seems to be one of those people who is essentially the entire Tanzanian film industry. And what didn't register with me is that there was an in-person Q&A with Amel Shivji as part of the Africa Eye Film Festival, which is where I saw this film. Tug of War is based on a novel, a very, very successful novel by Shafi Adam Shafi, which apparently every Tanzanian child reads in school. I mean, it is one of the core texts of Swahili literature and revolves around revolutionaries on Zanzibar in 1954. We have a young black man, Dengue, played by Gudrun Columbus Mwanyika, who is a firebrand revolutionary. He is part of the local Communist Party. He went to the Soviet Union in order to get training in communist revolution, but has started to grow tired of just handing out pamphlets, which he translates from Russian into Swahili, and wants to take some more aggressive action to free his homeland of Zanzibar. And one night while he's out distributing these pamphlets, he comes across a young Indian Zanzibari woman 
played by Iklas Gafurvora, who is being forced into an arranged marriage with a man who is three times as old as her. So when she runs away from this difficult situation, she finds sanctuary with a black woman who she kind of knew at school, played by Siti Amina, who shelters her, and even though they live in the black neighbourhood and an Indian girl in this black neighbourhood sticks out like a sore thumb, she is being helped by Siti Amina, who just so happens to also be a friend with Gudrun Columbus Monyika. And wouldn't you know it, sparks start flying between this black communist revolutionary and this mildly naive Indian girl who is running away from an arranged marriage. And the ferment of revolution is in the air in 1954 on Zanzibar, and the British protectorate authorities, as well as the Omani Sultanate, which is still technically in charge of Zanzibar, both want these communist revolutionaries stamped out. And young Dengue is a very wanted man. So can this relationship between Dengue and Yasmin, this Indian girl, survive the foment of revolution in 1954 on Zanzibar? So when I saw this on the programme of the Africa Eye Film Festival, I instantly thought, okay, that's definitely something I want to check out. I mean, as I said, this is the first time Tanzania has ever submitted a film to the international feature Oscar race. It's noteworthy for that, and it sounded like a reasonably interesting premise. And being that it is based on one of the cornerstones of Swahili literature, that also appealed. Although apparently, Amel Shivji significantly changed the ending of the original novel. The original novel was started to be written by Adam Sharfi in the 1970s and it was published in the 1990s. And attitudes and agendas have somewhat moved on in the decades since. And in the 21st century, Amal Shivji felt the need to change the ending and particularly how involved Yasmin, this young woman, is involved in the story, with apparently the support and understanding of the original novelist Adam Sharfi, who does make a cameo in the film in a cafe in Dar es Salaam. So yeah, that was interesting, this cornerstone of Swahili literature, and he changed the ending. But yeah, all of that seemed like a good prospect, and I was eager to see Tug of War. Unfortunately, I don't think it's a very good film. It does have all these ideas of revolutionary and how underground movements like this communist-led protest in Zanzibar in 1954, how that lays out. I mean, all the character beats and all the plot beats that you expect to happen in this film, they happen in this film. I mean, there's lots of stuff. I mean, who's being betrayed by who? Who's being paid off by the British authorities? Who's an informant? Can anybody be trusted? I mean, when we go to the mainland, are we in danger? I mean, who 
has been subverted on the mainland. I mean, the the people who are supposedly leaving, leading this Zanzibari revolution are living in exile in Tanganyika, in Dar es Salaam. So at what point do we listen to their points of view? And when can we you know, actually create violence in pursuit of freedom for Zanzibar? The relationship itself between Dengue and Yasmin, that goes along rails as well. I mean, this somewhat naive, somewhat protected young Indian woman who doesn't know the ways of the world, has nowhere else to go other than this girl, Mwajuma, played by Siti Amina, who she vaguely knew at school and didn't really hang out with at school. But now this is the only place where she can survive. And, you know, getting more and more visits from Dengue. I mean, yes, I'm here for the pamphlets, when really he's here to see Yasmin. And, that would be fine. This kind of story does tend to go on rails. I mean, you know the kinds of things which are going to happen when you have these two stories intertwining with each other. We have the Romeo and Juliet love story, you know, two people from very different backgrounds who form uh, a bond, and the story of a revolution, you know, a grassroots protest movement, which is gradually getting more aggressive, gradually getting more notice. and Gradually, also, the authorities are stamping down hard on it. We kind of know the things which are going to happen, but I don't think this is a story that has been told with any great originality or invention. And perhaps the biggest crime that this film, Tug of War, commits is the fact I do not buy the chemistry between the two leads. Gudrun Columbus Mwanyika and Iklas Gafavora, I just don't see them as two people who are falling passionately in love. I mean, uh, and, you know, the forbidden fruit kind of thing. I just don't see it. I don't buy it. And if that's supposed to be the focus of your story, then I think you fail. I found it very, very significant that a large portion of the Q&A that was after this film was taken up by discussions of the Zanzibar Revolution, which took place in 1963, almost a decade after the events of this film, which took place in 1954. And the discussion of the Zanzibar Revolution and all the ins and outs of that situation and the atrocities that were committed in the name of freedom. That sounds fascinating. Honestly, it sounds more fascinating than the stuff which goes on in this film. It seems to be very much like a situation in Indonesia, like we saw documented in the documentaries The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence. Because the side which essentially used a massacre to gain independence is still in charge, it is actually illegal in Tanzania, in Zanzibar, to talk in any negative way about the Zanzibar revolution, despite the fact that tens of thousands of 
people from Arab backgrounds and Indian backgrounds were massacred. And by the sound of it, most of the people who were actually in charge and were actually, you know, descended from Arab slave traders, they disappeared long ago and the people who were left behind had nothing to do with the slave trade. So this glorious revolution with black people massacring Arabs and Indians because they were slave traders, that narrative doesn't hold historical water. And yet that is the narrative, which is the foundational myth of an independent Zanzibar, which is now part of Tanzania. So yeah, all of that sounds really, really fascinating and much, much more fascinating than the story which is going on in this film, Tug of War. I also found it significant that most of the people who were asking questions in this Q&A, the moderator knew by name. I mean, he was a rather, honestly, a rather pompous man who apparently founded this Africa Eye Film Festival years ago, and most of the people asking questions were other people who worked for the Africa Eye Film Festival. And it has to be said, the overwhelming majority of the people who run the Africa Eye Film Festival are white. But, yeah, it was, I think, a demonstration that nobody seemed to have any questions, nobody seemed to have any observations other than talking about the Zanzibar Revolution. I mean, the first question was, by somebody who lived on Zanzibar and knew the story. And the other questions, yeah, the other somewhat banal questions were asked by people who worked for the Africa Eye Film Festival. So, yeah, it, it was honestly one of the strangest Q&As I've ever been a part of. And it demonstrated, I think, just how little impact the film itself had. I can live with a film that is somewhat formulaic that has a specific setup that it knows what it's doing. You know, we are going to tell the story of a revolution. We are going to tell the story of star-crossed lovers. That's fine. Just do it with a little bit of flair, a little bit of invention. Even the one moment in the film where a bit of visual flair is attempted It's kind of a dream sequence when Dengue has been arrested by the British, and it's kind of a dream sequence. It's actually the image you see on the poster, or at least the poster that's currently up on IMDb at time of recording. And even that, it's like, A, it's very short, and B, it seems a little bit perfunctory. So even when they do try some visual flair, in my opinion, it doesn't work particularly well. And it's pains me to say this, that I was disappointed by Tug of War. I just don't think it's a particularly good film. I love the fact that a country like Tanzania is starting or making the first steps along the path to having a decent film industry. I mean, its neighbour Kenya was at this stage about a decade ago. And now Kenya has some interesting films coming out. I mean, actually, Kenya submitted a Machinima animated film, a feature-length film which was entirely animated within the Unreal game engine. Now, that sounds fascinating. So, yeah, Kenya has gone in some very different directions, and who knows, maybe a decade down the line, Tanzania will do the same. But right now, 
this is weak stuff and I just don't think it's very interesting. And much as I would like to support the film industry of a country like Tanzania, I don't think this is worth it. And for me, Tug of War is a nay. Tori and Lokita is a Belgian film and is directed by the legendary Dardenne brothers. Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne have been directing for decades. If you count them as one directing unit, they are one of nine directors who have won two Palms d'Or. They specialise in gritty social realism, on occasion verging on harrowing social realism, and their status as one of the great directors of European cinema is unquestioned. In their early career, they won Palm's Door for the harrowing films Rosetta and the Sun. Their filmography also includes such films as The Child and The Kid on a Bike. And by the way, Thomas Doré, the titular Kid on the Bike, has a very, very small, almost non-speaking role in this film, Tori and Lakita. They do tend to cast the same people, but the kid on the bike is grown up and is now playing a lawyer in this latest film. But anyway, most of their films have some aspects of social justice or exploring deprivation. Perhaps their most mainstream film and the most successful film is Two Days, One Night which got a lot of attention thanks to the deserved Oscar nomination that Marion Cotillard got for that film for Best Actress. But a film that intimately explores depression is actually, for the Dardenne brothers, reasonably light. They're those kinds of directors. So I wasn't necessarily looking forward to watching Tori and Lokita, particularly since Belgium had already submitted the outstanding film Close, directed by Lucas de Haunt, to the international feature Oscar competition. So I wasn't desperate to see Tori and Lokita, but... The Africa Eye Film Festival had a deal where if you bought three tickets at the festival, you got a significant discount. And since I'd already ticked off the two Oscar-submitted films at the festival, I needed a third film, and this seemed like the best option. So I ended up buying myself a ticket to Tori and Lokita at the Africa Eye Film Festival. And the reason that this Belgian film qualifies for inclusion in the Africa Eye Film Festival is it deals with the story of two young African immigrants into Belgium. Lokita, played by Jolie Mbundu, is about 16, 17 years old and is the de facto family for Tori, played by Pablo Schills, who is about 10 or 11, somewhere around there. 
they are masquerading as brother and sister because this is the best way that they can stay in Belgium, having been trafficked there from Sicily, where they ended up after getting on a boat in North Africa. But they are not actually brother and sister. So, desperately trying to stay in the country, they are figuring out believable lies for the Belgian authorities in order that they will stay together. I mean, there's scenes in this film which are very reminiscent of the old Gerard Depardieu comedy Green Card, where they're rehearsing their stories and trying to get it right for the authorities. But eventually, this doesn't work. So, while Young boy Tory is safe. He has been given his papers because he claims, and it's unclear whether this is actually true, he claims he is an unwanted witch child in West Africa. But this story is believed enough that he is safe. But Lokita isn't. And it looks like she might be sent back to where she came from. And it's unclear whether the country she claims to come from, Benin, is the country she is actually from. So there's every possibility she will be sent back to the wrong country. So she is desperate to stay in Belgium. And this means that she gets even deeper into the drug dealing operation she has been a part of. Both Tori and Lukita have been dealing drugs on a Friday night for a local Albanian pizza chef played by Alban Ukaj. And this is the only way that they can make some money in order to send home. On the older girl Lukita's part, she is sending home money in order for her five brothers to be sent to school. But as well as sending home money, they also need to keep in good with the people traffickers who they owe a lot of money to and are getting increasingly violent. So when it looks like Jolien Bundu will be sent away, she agrees to get very deep in with this Albanian drug dealer and get dangerously involved in his operation. But the fact that for three months, as Jolien Bundu is sent to the country to a cannabis farm, she will be separated from her brother, this is something that neither of them can live with, and it sets off a chain of events, which doesn't particularly end well. But such is the life of an illegal immigrant into Belgium. So I think Tori and Lakita is two things. Firstly, I think it is a mirror film to the Dardenne brothers' last film but one. The last film was a film called Young Ahmed about a radicalised young Moroccan-Belgian boy. And the one before that was The Unknown Girl in which Adele Ainal played a doctor who is forced to confront her apathy and elitism 
when she refuses to open her clinic's door late at night and the next morning finds that the person who was desperate to get into the clinic she works at was a young African woman who is now dead. And I think the unknown girl and Torino Kisa are two halves of the same coin, telling somewhat similar stories about the horrible circumstances of African immigrants desperately trying to stay in Belgium. But in The Unknown Girl, it is from the white woman's perspective. And in this case, we have it from the actual immigrant's perspective. The things that these children need to do in order to stay in the country. The lies they need to tell. The crimes they need to commit. The only way of getting any money whatsoever as their claims are being processed is to deliver drugs for this local Albanian gangster. That's the only thing they can do. And, in the case of this 17-ish-year-old girl, Jolian Bundu, occasionally succumb to sexual advances from this shady pizza share. That's just what you have to do in order to stay in Belgium. And that's not even getting into the increasingly violent people traffickers who you owe a substantial amount of money to. And when they get their money, you can't send any money back to your mother, or at least Julian Bundu's mother. And the mother, I mean, we only ever hear Lakita's half of the conversation on the phone, but it is heavily implied, well, you're just keeping the money for yourself, aren't you? I mean, don't you think of your brothers? I mean, your brothers need to go to school. I mean, you, the girl, have been sent on this incredibly long, incredibly dangerous journey to Europe, yet you're living it up while your brothers, who need the education, aren't getting it. I mean, so this 17-ish-year-old girl is just trapped by so many different things. I mean, the Belgian authorities, who she regularly needs to lie to, the people traffickers who she needs to keep on the good side of unless serious physical harm comes to her, and this drug dealer who is the only way she can get any money at all. And all of these different aspects keep on pushing and pulling and crushing in on this girl, and she is struggling with it. Jolian Bundu does a really, really good job of portraying this girl because frequently throughout the course of the film, we see her suffering from panic attacks. I mean, it gets so bad that one person witnesses this, a white girl witnesses this, and thinks she's having an epileptic fit. I mean, she's not. It's a panic attack. But she is so traumatised and has got so much pressure put upon her that she's frequently suffering from panic attacks. And the only thing that helps her, the only person that helps her, is her de facto brother, Pablo Schills. And there's a recurring theme, a song that they sing to each other, to calm each other, to connect with each other. But this is an Italian folk song, which they learnt from the person they stayed with briefly in Sicily when they first got off the boat. So these two African kids are singing an Italian song to each other in order to connect, in order to calm each other. And, I mean, that's you know, really beautiful and really powerful. But it does demonstrate 
that Jolian Bundu, Lakita, does need her brother, her support structure with her. And the prospect of spending three months apart from her as she is working in this cannabis farm in the middle of nowhere, it's too much. And the need to connect sets off a series of events that doesn't end well. And the ideas that this film presents about the criminal underworld, I mean, this Albanian pizza chef is so paranoid about people stealing his stuff, that he will not accept these two kids need to be together. And it kind of ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, he is so rigid about not having connection that the desperate need for these two people to connect creates exactly the situation that he was fearful of in the first place. And ultimately, this film turns into more of a crime drama than anything. I mean, the two things that this film has going for it is it's a mirror to the unknown girl and it's a crime drama akin to something that the Coen brothers might write or David Mamet might write. An ordinary person drawn into the criminal underworld, getting out of their depth and it not going well. The absolute desperation of somebody who is pushed to make very, very bad decisions in the criminal underworld. A criminal underworld you don't fully understand and don't fully appreciate. So yeah, I mean, this really did feel by the end to be you know, a David Mamet or a, a Coen Brothers crime movie. I mean, an ordinary person doing really, really stupid things with criminal elements through a simple act of desperation. And that's where this film, Torian Lakita, mostly ends up. And ultimately, this is kind of depressing. I mean, I'm not sure the Darden brothers have ever made a film which had an outright happy ending. I mean, the final scene of Two Days, One Night is somewhat triumphant, but Marion Cotillard didn't achieve what she set out to achieve. The kid with a bike has an ending which is at best ambiguous, and young Ahmed was, I think, ambiguous to a fault. I like the idea of what I think the Darden brothers were trying to do with young Ahmed in asking the question, has this kid been radicalised? Do we know what is in his heart? But by making it so open, I think they missed a trick with Young Army. And their early work is all, you know, deprivation and horror and depression and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, the Darden brothers are the kinds of people who are a little bit like Ken Loach here in England, who are saying, sort of grabbing us by our lapels and screaming at us, look at what is happening. This is what it is like to be poor in, well, in the Darden brothers' case you know the french speaking parts of belgium wallonia this is what it is like to be poor in wallonia just as much as ken loach is saying this is what it is like to be poor in the north of england and there's no hope there's no grace 
there's no way out. And that's kind of what the Tottenham brothers do and have done throughout the course of their career. So, yeah, this is as depressing as I expected it to be. But on those terms, it's pretty good. I think it fits in very nicely with the Dodden Brothers filmography. I think their best film is still Two Days, One Night, and that's only because of the outstanding performance of Marion Cotillard. This is pretty heavy going, but if you know that going in, you will probably have a decent enough time watching it. I think Belgium did make the right choice in submitting Close by Lucas de Haunt, which I think is an outstanding piece of work. And when and if you can see Close, I thoroughly recommend that. But for Tori and Lokita, whenever it comes out, I do think that it is worth watching. If you know what you're going to get. So for me, Tori and Lokita is a solid meh. The Ace. So the one yay out of the three films I saw at the Africa Eye Film Festival 2022 is the Moroccan film The Blue Kaftan, which I think is a sublime piece of work. A beautiful, intimate portrayal of love in all its many different facets, all different types of love, all different intensities of love, but love nonetheless. It's really beautiful, it's really poetic, and as I said, any film that I can positively compare to Portrait of a Lady on Fire is something worth taking note of. I mean, Portrait of a Lady on Fire deserves its place as one of the 100 best films in history, at least according to the BFI and Sight and Sound, but... Yes, The Blue Kaftan is wonderful, and I really, really hope that at some point in 2023, it gets proper UK distribution. According to IMDb, it's not even getting a wide release in France until March 2023, so God knows when it's going to get a legal release here, but I really hope it does, and I really hope people see it, because I think it's a special piece of work and particularly the performance of Lubna Azabal is exceptional. So yes, the blue kaftan is brilliant, and I really hope people get to see it. So that brings me to the end of this special episode, and the next thing in the feed, which will hopefully be coming reasonably quickly, is my latest cinema edition of Yay, Nay, or Ma, where I will be reviewing James Ponsalt's new film, Summering, Gita Malik's film India Sweets and Spices and Tommy Wirkola's new slice of insanity Violent Night and spoiler alert because by the time I actually get to record that podcast you might not even be able to find it at the cinema Summering I really really liked and do recommend yes it's very stand by me but I did like it so yes do check out Summering if you get the chance But a full review of that and those other two films will be the next thing in this feed, most likely. But until then, that's all I've got to say for this episode. So all that remains for me to say is this has been the Africa Eye Film Festival 2022 Special Edition of Yay, Nay, Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. 
Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.